you frady cats and kittens i'm whitley i'm brian and this is deathly afraid if you've been here before welcome back this is your first time it's great to meet you (laughs) (laughs) how to do how to do (laughs) um how's your week so far started off pretty good for me on a monday recording super early this week yeah we are i'm coming to utah Brian's really excited about it. Yeah, I gotta spend all weekend with the kids. <laughs> by myself. You know you'll be at your mom's the whole time. Probably. <laughs> also, happy birthday to my grandma. Yeah, happy birthday, grandma. We love you. My wig's great, by the way. Thanks for asking. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I always forget to ask you. Such a... <laughs> He's such a gentleman. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, you want to just, I don't know what else to say. I don't think we have anything to say. Other than hopefully this week, you won't have to edit out my quietness because we switched microphones. Yeah, we're thinking it might be the mic that's the issue. So we're testing it. It might be my voice that's quiet this time, but I highly doubt it. <laughs> so... We're testing out this theory, seeing if it's a broken mic or Brian's broke ass. <laughs> um, yeah, so before we start, you know, just as usual, if you guys could like our podcast, give it a review, um, share it, we would greatly appreciate it. Rate it. Rate it on a scale of one to ten. Um, yeah, so I am going first this week. And I am talking about Lizzie Borden. It's you. (laughs) I did not do the things she's done. (laughs) Um, We've all heard, you know, the little, I don't even know why they call it a nursery rhyme or anything or schoolyard rhyme. It's really not very nice, but, you know. Lizzie Borden had an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she seen what she had done, she gave her father 41. Yeah. Yeah. So that is about Lizzie Andrew Borden, who also did not give her mother or father near 40 wax, but we will find out. (laughs) So Lizzie was born July 19th of 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. (laughs) I can't do words. She was born in Fall River, Massachusetts. Um, Her parents were her mother, Sarah Anthony Borden, born in 1823 and died in 1863. And her father, Andrew Jackson Borden, born in 1822 and died in 1892. As you can tell, they did not die at the same time. So her birth mother is not the one that got the wax. Okay. (laughs) Lizzie's father grew up in very modest surroundings. 
As he got older, eventually he began to prosper in the manufacture and sales of furniture and caskets. He also became a successful property developer. He was the director of several textile mills and owned commercial property. He also was the president of Union Saving of the Union Savings Bank and the director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. Upon his death, his estate's valued at $300,000, which is equivalent to $9.6 million today. Dang. So, he was very well off by the end of his life. So that's his dad? Or her that's dad? That's her dad, yeah. Her dad. Yeah. Andrew. Um, so even though he was really wealthy, he was known to be very frugal with his money. So like, for example, the Borden's home didn't have indoor plumbing. But at that time, it was actually really common for like wealthier families to have indoor plumbing. Yeah. But he just refused like. He wasn't going to waste his money on that. Lizzie and her sister Emma were brought up fairly religious and attended Central Congregational Church. Lizzie was very involved with the church activities, including teaching Sunday school to children of recent immigrants to the U.S., the Christian Endeavor Society, where she served as the secretary treasurer. She was also a member of the Ladies Fruit of the Flower Mission. Flute? Ah. Flute? Fruit of the Flower. She was also a member of the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission. Three years after the death of Lizzie's mother, Sarah, Andrew remarried to Abby Durfee Gray. Lizzie and Abby did not have a close relationship. Lizzie would refer to Abby as Mrs. Borden and believed that Abby only married her father for his money. So she was not a fan. It's her sugar daddy. <laughs> I mean, he's worth a lot. <laughs> So in July of 19... I can't get my ears straight. can't get my life straight. A family argument in July of 1892 prompted Lizzie and her sister to take, an ex take extended va vacations in New Bedford. Lizzie returned to Fall River just one week prior to the murders, but she actually chose to stay at a local rooming house for four days before she finally returned to the family home. Lizzie and her sister had become upset after their father had gifted members of Ab Abby's family. Andrew had gifted Abby's sister a house. And at that point, Lizzie and her sister demanded that they also receive, you know, property. And they received a rental property that they had actually lived in up until their mother's death. They purchased the home from their father for $1. Then a few weeks before the murders, they sold it back to him for 5000 which would equal 151000 today. Dang. So they got it for a dollar from him. Like, he got screwed on this deal. Right? So I'll give it to you for a dollar. And then I'll buy it back for 5000 So do what he wants. Um, so Sarah, their mother, yeah. her brother, John Morris, had come to visit the night before the murders. He was invited to stay in the home for a few days while he was in town. For several days before the murders, the entire family had actually been really sick. And a family friend speculated that um, mutton that was left on the stove for several days and used in their meals was the reason for the illness, which makes, makes, a lot of sense. makes a ton of sense. <laughs> like, you're just leaving it out. But I guess back in that day, like, maybe that was a thing. I don't know. It grosses me out. Right. So, Abby actually had feared that they had been poisoned when they were sick because 
Andrew was not the most popular man in town. On the morning of August 4th, the family, along with their live-in maid Bridget, who they all referred to as Maggie, all had breakfast. Afterward, Andrew and John went into the sitting room where they talked for about an hour. Then John left the home around 8.48 a.m. to buy a pair of oxen, you know, as you do, right. and visit his niece. He had planned to be back to the house um, by noon for lunch. Andrew left for his morning walk around 9 a.m. Normally, Lizzie and Emma would clean the guest room, but Abby had gone upstairs between 9 and 10.30 to make the bed. Andrew returned home around 10.30 and his key failed to work in the lock. When he knocked to be let in, Maggie came to the door and found it jammed. When she cursed, she heard Lizzie giggling from the top of the stairs. Maggie stated that she helped Andrew with his remove his boots and put on his house slippers before he laid down on the sofa, sofa for a nap. Um, Maggie then went to lay down in her room and take a nap as she still wasn't feeling good from, you know, the sickness running through the family. Yeah. It was just before 1110 when Maggie heard Lizzie calling from downstairs. Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. Andrew was slumped on the couch in the in the downstairs sitting room. He had been struck 10 to 11 times with a hatchet-like weapon. One of his eyes was split completely in two, Dang. which suggested that he was asleep during when the attack happened. He was still bleeding, which meant that the attack was very recent, like it had just happened. Yeah. So um, she had Bridget go and get the family physician from across the street. Because he just lived to grow. Like, how convenient. Go right. get the doctor. <laughs> the family physician came across the street and pronounced both Andrew and Abby dead. So, at this point, you realize Abby's also been murdered. Yeah. Um. When Lizzie was initially interviewed by police, they had asked where Abby was. And Lizzie said she had received a note asking her to visit a sick friend. She then said that she had thought Abby might have returned and asked someone to go upstairs and look for her. Bridget and a neighbor were halfway up the stairs when they looked into the guest room and saw Abby face down on the floor. Abby was found dead in the guest room, which was at the top of the stairs. So when Bridget had said she heard Lizzie giggling when yeah. she had cursed at the top of the stairs... Um, this actually became a pretty big deal because if Lizzie was at the top of the stairs, she would have been able to see Abby's body and she because she was already dead at this time. Yeah. And really, like, you're at the top of the stairs, guest room's right there. And she would have been able to, you know. Um, Lizzie denied being up the stairs when this happened. She had told investigators that she was in the barn at the time of the murders. Um, also, Bridget had told investigators that she had helped Andrew with his boots and put on slippers, but when you see the crime scene photos, you can see that Andrew still has his boots on in the crime scene. Huh. So it's like, what? <laughs> and that was Bridget, the maid that said she did that. So it's kind of sketchy on her part, too. Um, Lizzie's stories kept changing. At first, she told investigators... She heard a groan or scraping noise or a distress call when she first walked up to the house. Then just two hours later, she said she heard nothing and entered the house not knowing that anything was wrong. So she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I heard something. So I came out. 
I heard it, so I came. She was in the kitchen cleaning a dish. <laughs> right. She heard it, so, so she, she came, came out. out. <laughs> uh, tell them what you told me. <laughs> That's not what you told me. <laughs> um. So most officers who did interview Lizzie said they didn't like her attitude, and some even said she was too calm and poised. Police did search her room, but they did not do a thorough job and admitted at the trial that they did not do a proper search because Lizzie wasn't feeling well. So, you know, just don't search it. Yeah. Problem solved. I feel much better, officer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The police found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle in the basement. They suspected the hatchet head to be the murder weapon because it looked like it had recently been broken off the head. Off the handle and the head had some ash and dust that looked like it was purposely put on there to make it look like it was in the basement for a long time. Yeah. But they didn't even collect those from the house. Oh. <laughs> um, they tested Andrew and Abby's stomach's contents for poison because of the recent illness, but nothing was found. Lizzie had recently purchased hydrocyanic hydrocyanic acid. From the drugstore, which she claimed was to clean her furs, but the medical examiner claimed it doesn't have any antiseptic properties. So, like, why would you buy that to clean your furs? That doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um. On August 6th, so a couple days after the murder, the police conducted a more in-depth search of the house. They confiscated the broken hatchet, finally. But the sisters and John had all been staying in the house the entire time. Um, leaving them time to dispose of any evidence if there was any. Yeah. So, the um that morning of August sixth, Lizzie's friend Alice Russell entered the kitchen, and Lizzie was tearing up a dress. She said she was planning to put it in the fire because it was covered in paint. Um, it was never determined if that was the dress she was wearing that day or not, though. But also, why are you burning a dress right. instead of just throwing it away? Like, oh, this has paint on it. I better burn it. Well, the fact that you got to tear it up before you're going to burn it. Like, it's just weird, right? Yeah. Um, on August 8th, Lizzie appeared at the inquest hearing, but was denied her request to have the family lawyer present. They were like, no, this is a private thing. You can't have your lawyer while we question you. Yeah. <laughs> Nowadays, that's like, no. <laughs> right. So she was actually prescribed regular door... Dorses. Dorses. She was prescribed regular doses of morphine to calm her nerves, and it was possible that this actually affected her testimony. Her behavior was erratic, and she would often refuse to answer questions, even ones that would have been beneficial to her. Huh. She kept telling contradicting stories about the morning of the murders. At one point, she said she was in the kitchen reading a magazine. Not cleaning a dish. You were wrong. She was in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father came home. Then she was in the dining room ironing and she said she was then she said she was coming down the stairs. She even said she helped her father remove his boots and put on his house slipper, which Bridget also claimed to do, but he was still wearing his boots in the crime scene <laughs> photos. So this is my professional podcaster opinion. They did it together. <laughs> right. Um, I'm just making shit up, guys. So, 
Um, on August 11th, Lizzie was served a warrant for her arrest and was jailed. The inquest testimony was ruled inadmissible in the trial in June of 19... I really want this to be in the 1900s. <laughs> I mean, it's close. In the trial of June of 1893. The trial began on June 5th, 1893, but five days before the commencement of the trial on June 1st, there was another axe murder in Fall River. The victim, Bertha Manchester, was found hacked to death in her kitchen. Um, when I was reading about it, I said, like, the crime scenes were so much alike. Like, they were like, oh, man, maybe we got the wrong person, you know? Yeah. But they uh, convicted a man named Jose Carrera de Mello. I can't say words. Jose Carrera de Mello. He was convicted of this murder, and it was proven that he wasn't even in Fall River at the time of Andrew and Abby's murders. Okay. So they had to keep going with that with Abby, with Lizzie. Um, the prosecu the prosecution didn't present a very good case of the murder weapon. One officer testified that the handle was found near the hatchet, but then the other officer contradicted his story. So it was like. Are you guys making crap up? You know? Yeah. Lizzie's presence at the home was a point of dispute as well at the trial. Bridget testified Lizzie was in the home when she went upstairs, but Lizzie stated that she had gone out to the barn and was not in the house for at least 20 or 30 minutes. A neighbor testified that he seen Lizzie leaving the barn at 11.03, and another um, neighbor confirmed that. Huh. So, you remember it was like 11.10 when... Yeah. Yeah. So, at 11.10 is when Lizzie called Bridget down the stairs and sent her to go get the doctor. Both Andrew and Abby's skulls were pres presented as evidence at the trial, and upon seeing them in the courtroom, Lizzie fainted. It's kind of weird, ev evidence. You never... Right? Like... <laughs> Here's this. There's like a Shakespeare when he's holding this, <laughs> the skull or whatever. You'd think the skulls probably are pretty crushed up, though. Probably. I mean, she, when I was reading it, said that Andrew's face was basically not even a face anymore. Dang. Yeah, like unrecognizable. So I don't know. Um, evidence that Lizzie purchased hydrogen cyanide the day before the murders was ex excluded from the trial because the judge ruled that the incident was too remote in time to have any connection. So, and I mean, they did test their stomachs. No one was poisoned. Yeah. On June 20th of 1893, Lizzie was acquitted of the murders. When leaving the courthouse, Lizzie said she was the happiest woman in the world. Lizzie remained the prime. Why is my words not working? <laughs> Lizzie remained the prime. <laughs> it's not even a word. <laughs> Lizzie remained the prime suspect in the murders. There were many speculations of why Lizzie would have done this. Some speculated she may have committed the. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some speculated she may have committed the murders in a fugue state. Some thought her father was sexually and physically abusing Lizzie, but incest was not a topic that would have been discussed at the time. Others suggested Lizzie committed the murders after being caught with Bridget. Um, later in life, Lizzie was rumored to be a homosexual, but Bridget went on to marry a man later in life. So, but I mean, Still some people, yeah. you know, there is bisexual too. So who knows? 
Bridget died in 1948, where she allegedly gave a deathbed confession to her sister that she had changed her testimony to protect Lizzie. Um, John, the uncle, was yeah. also considered a suspect for a period of time, but he had given, and this is a quote from the police, an absurdly perfect and over-detailed alibi for the death of Abby Borden. <laughs> <laughs> So he had it down where he was. <laughs> I mean, if I was being accused of murder, I think I'd be like, nope, I was doing this. I was not there. Right. Um, other suspect were other suspects were Bridget because she was made to clean all the windows on a hot day after being sick. Which seems silly to me. Right. I mean. I get being hot and angry, but not that angry. <laughs> Don't make me fold the laundry in the summer. Okay. All right. I'll end up with axed. <laughs> um, a man, another suspect, was a man named William Bord Borden, who was suspected to be Andrew's illegitimate son. It was said William had tried and failed to extort money from Andrew, and it was later proven that he was not his son. Um, although Emma was in Fairhaven, which was 15 miles from Fall River, it was suggested she secretly came home to kill her parents and then returned to Fairhaven to receive the telegram informing her of the murders. <laughs> Seems super logical. Right? <laughs> I mean, people have done crazier things, but it seems a little silly. Right. Um, after the trial... The sisters bought a large house in the Hill neighborhood. Um, Lizzie began going by Lizbeth. Lizbeth. Lizbeth, which is what my dad calls me sometimes, so it's kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, because Abby died before Andrew, her estate then went to him. And then at his death, it went to his daughters as part of their as part of his estate. However, there was a large sediment paid to Abby's family. Yeah. So I think people were kind of mad and they were like, no, I want that money. Right. Um, in 1905, the sisters had a public argument at a party that Lisbeth had thrown for actress Nance O'Neill. And Emma ended up moving out of the home that they shared together and they never spoke again. Huh. Then on June 1st of 1927, Lisbeth died of pneumonia. Nine days later, Emma died. That's crazy. Right? Isn't that weird? Um, They're buried side by side in the family plot in Oak Grove Cemetery. And at the time of her death, Lisbeth was worth over $250,000, which would be $5,233,000 today. Huh. So, I mean, and think about it, their dad was worth nine million and they split it. Yeah. So she had to have made some good money, too. Cause... Somehow, yeah. But, um, yeah. And then I was going to tell you, they so they have the Borden house where it's like a bed and breakfast now. You can stay there and it's supposed to be haunted. So that huh. would be cool. Yeah. Super cool. Super cool. And then you could do an episode there. That would be kind of fun, actually. Right? <laughs> I thought it was a good idea. I'm full of good ideas. <laughs> as long as nobody gets hatcheted while we're there. Right. So <laughs> that's my story about Lizzie Borden. Pretty good. I've never 
I mean, I've heard like a little rhyme you were talking about at the beginning, but I've never heard the whole story. So yeah, well, and then like I said, like neither one of them got even close to forty. Yeah, you know, I think so. The dad got ten to eleven, and I believe they said Abby was like fifteen ish. Yeah, so not even, not even forty. Not even 40. not even halfway there. <laughs> and. Abby got more than him, so why in the rhyme is it not switched? Right? It is Abby normal. <laughs> so, what story do you have for me today, my dear? So, the story I have today was actually one that Squidney suggested that I do. Squid! Shout out to Squidney. We love you, Squidney. Um, it is on the creature called the Rake. Is it Rake or Reiki? I don't know. But I'm saying Rake. It could be Reiki. But I have no idea. I, I don't know. It's spelled Rake, R-A-K-E. So. Right. But anyway, so this Rake or Reiki is described as a hairless dog or naked man. Hold on. Ready? Yeah. Rake. It is just Rake. rake. Mm-hmm. Okay. It is just Rake, guys. So anyway, it's described as a hairless dog or a naked man. The rake gets its name from the long rake-like claws it has on its hand. According to the tale, the earliest reference to the rake comes from a mariner's log dated 1691. So how does the rake find you? The rake will follow your scent trail and eventually catch up to you if you don't start moving again soon. If the rake is in the area, get out and stay away from the area. The rake will eventually wander away or track you down. You know, either or. So why is it? <laughs> how does it pick you? I don't. I couldn't find anything on that. I don't know. It just smells it's, you one day and it's sure. like, that's the one. So that's why you always got to smell good. So if you smell bad, then it'll pick you up. But what if it likes good smells and not bad smells? Oh, that's true. I don't know. I gotta quit letting you buy that cologne. <laughs> right? <laughs> so the rake is primarily focused in rural New York State and once found in Idaho, which is super scary. No. We are. <laughs> it can't be in Idaho. F you, Sydney. Um, so self-proclaimed witnesses told their stories of their encounters with a creature of unknown origin. So I have one really long story. And then there's a couple other little short encounters. Uh, I found all of these stories on creepypasta.com. Ooh, it's a creepypasta. So the first story is from a witness in 2006. So, I mean, it's not that long ago. Um, We were just getting out of high school. Right? (laughs) So three years ago. I had just returned from a trip to Niagara Falls with my family for the 4th of July. We were all very exhausted after a long day of driving, so my husband and I put the kids right to bed. At about 4 a.m., I woke up thinking my husband had gotten up to use the restroom. I used the moment to steal back the sheets, only to wake him up in the process. I apologized and told him I thought he got out of bed. When he turned to face me, he gasped and pulled his feet up from the end of the bed so quickly his knee almost knocked me out of the bed. He then grabbed me and said nothing. After adjusting to the dark for a half second, I was able to see what caused the strange reaction. At the foot of the bed, sitting and facing away from us, 
there was what appeared to be a naked man or a large hairless dog of some sort. Its body position was kind of disturbing and unnatural, as if it had been hit by a car or something. For some reason, I wasn't instantly frightened by it, but more concerned to as, or as to its condition. At this point, I was somewhat under the assumption that we were supposed to help him. My husband was peering over his arm and knee, tucked into the fetal position, occasion, occasionally glancing at me before returning to the creature. In a flurry of motion, the creature scrambled around the side of the bed and then crawled quickly in a flowing sort of motion right along the bed until it was less than a foot from my husband's face. The creature was completely silent for about 30 seconds just looking at my husband. The creature then placed its hand on his knee and ran into the hallway leading to the kids' rooms. I screamed and ran for the light switch, planning to stop him before he hurt my children. When I got to the hallway, the light from the bedroom was enough to see it crouching and hunched over about 20 feet away. He turned around and looked directly at me, covered in blood. I flipped the switch on the wall and saw my daughter Clara. The creature ran down the stairs while my husband and I rushed to help our daughter. She was very badly injured and spoke only once more in her short life. She said, he is the rake. My husband drove his car into a lake that night while rushing our daughter to the hospital. They did not survive. Being a small town, news got out pretty quickly. The police were helpful at first and the local newspaper took a lot of interest as well. However, the story was never published, and the local television news never followed up either. For several months, my son Justin and I stayed in a hotel near my parents' house. After we decided to return home, I began to look for answers myself. I eventually located a man in the next town over who had a similar story. We got in contact and began talking about our experiences. He knew of two other people in New York who had seen the creature we now referred to as the rake. It took the four of us about two solid years of hunting on the internet and writing letters to come up with a small collection of what we believed to be accounts of the rake. None of them gave any details, history, or follow-up. One journal had an entry involving the creature in its first three pages and never mentioned it again. A ship's log explained nothing of the encounter, saying only that they were told to leave by the rake. That was the last entry in the log. There were, however, many instances where the creature's visit was one of a series of visits with the same person. Multiple people also mentioned being spoken to, my daughter included. This led us to wonder if the rake had visited any of us before our last encounter. I set up a digital recorder near my bed and left it running all night, every night for two weeks. I would tediously scan through the sounds of me rolling around in my bed each day when I woke up. By the end of the second week, I was quite used to the occasional sound of sleep while blurring through the recording at eight times the normal speed. On the first day of the third week, I thought I heard something different. What I found was a shrill voice. It was the rate. I can't listen to it long enough to even begin to transcribe it. I haven't let anyone listen to it yet. All I know is that I've heard it before, and now I believe that it spoke when it was in front of my husband. I don't remember hearing anything at the time, but for some reason, the voice on the recorder immediately brings me back to that moment. 
The thoughts that must have gone through my daughter's head make me very upset. I haven't seen the rake since he ruined my life, but I know that he has been in my room while I slept. I know and fear that one night I'll wake up to see him staring at me. Oh, I don't. I hate that. Like, right? Like the paranormal stories, like nobody really gets hurt. It just scares the crap out of you. Like this one is harming people. Yeah, it's just. I don't like that. And I was like, when I seen that, like reading that story, I was just like. That sucks so bad. I mean, she lost her husband and her daughter in the same freaking night. Ugh. I couldn't even imagine. That would be freaking horrible. Yeah. I hate it. That was dumb. Sydney's stupid story. I'm <laughs> joking. So that was the long story of it. And I got three other kind of shorter... Little snippets. Little snippets here. So the first one is that... um the Mariner's Log from 1691 that says, He came to me in my sleep. From the foot of my bed, I felt a sensation. He took everything. We must return to e- England. We shall not return here again at the request of the rake. Hmm. And that was the last known log from this Mariner's Like, and that ship disappeared, or? Yeah. Huh. That's weird. Right. So the next one is a journal entry translated from Spanish, um, dated 1880. Says, I have experienced the greatest terror. I have experienced the greatest terror. I have experienced the greatest terror. I see his eyes when I close mine. They are hollow black. They saw me and pierced me. His wet hand. I will not sleep. His voice. That was a weird translation. Right? <laughs> At first I thought you'd read the same line twice, and I was like, oh no, that's part of it. <laughs> it was the first three. Yeah. It was all right, the same, yeah. But... I figured that out, but... Yeah. So, and the last one I got here is a suicide note, actually written from a person in 1964. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Super like, And it's weird that it's causing these people to either commit suicide or mm-hmm. stuff like that. So it's just it's super crazy. I don't like it. So the note reads, As I prepare to take my life, I feel it necessary to assuage, assuage any guilt or pain I have introduced through this act. It is not the fault of anyone other than him. For once I awoke and felt his presence. And once I awoke and saw his form. Once again I awoke and heard his voice. And he looked, er, and I looked into his eyes. I cannot sleep without fear of what I might next awake to experience. I cannot ever wake goodbye. And found in the same wooden box were two empty envelopes addressed to William and Rose and one loose personal letter with no envelope that said, Dearest Lenny, I have prayed for you. He spoke your name. Oh. So it sounds like it almost just really depresses people. Right? Like if he touches you or you're looking in his eyes, it sounds like that's the people who are really affected. Yeah. So that's kind of creepy. That is creepy. So, (laughs) what was I trying to say? Um, He just looks like a dog-like thing. 
So I actually have, I don't know if you saw the picture that I had on here the other day, but there's also a video on the internet. I was trying to find it so I could post it for our listeners to see on Facebook or Instagram, but when I tried to upload it, it wouldn't let me upload it. It said there was an error. But if I could find it, I will show it. There's a couple guys, I think, in England that said they encountered it and they had an actual video of it. Really? Ew. Yeah. It. I don't even know how to... It's like bald and veiny. Is that veiny? Or is that just the, way the pic- just the way the picture looks? It's got like super skinny arms and then like it's got like super long fingernails, almost like there's a forever like... I can see why they say, like, the the face almost looks doggish. I can see. Yeah. But, so that was on a trail camera in 2010. Hmm. Yeah. Super freaky. That is. I don't like it at all. (laughs) It's, yeah, it's not. I don't like it. (laughs) Anyway, that is my story this week. And now I got the chills. Right. Thanks, Sydney. We're not going to sleep anymore. No, all your suggestions like, creep me out. <laughs> well, it is the paranormal. I, I assume they're all going to freak you out. Some of them aren't as bad. Like, this one freaks me out because, like, people actually got hurt because of this thing. and Right. But sometimes, like, the creepy pastas are kind of like, a lot of them are made up, too. So it's like, yeah. eh, take it with a grain of salt. I don't know. I hope none of it's true. I mean. Right. So it would suck for anybody to have to go through that. <laughs> Please don't let it be us. Right. Keep the hag away. Keep that thing away. <laughs> yeah, definitely no hags in a box or rakes or black-eyed children. Right. I mean, we already got the black-eyed children. We're screwed there. That's true. Ain't nothing them black-eyed children can bring that our demons already haven't. Oh, my gosh. So cute. Oh, wait, his eyes open. That's creepy as hell. <laughs> oh my gosh. Our cat's laying here and he's like twisted in like a pretzel. And I, he looks so cute until I realized his eyeball was open and then it was creepy. Oh my gosh. He's adorable. <laughs> you guys, I'm in love with my cat. He's the most precious baby. He's like, I'll cover up my eyes. He's in front of me. He did. When I said his eyes were open, he covered up his face, all cute with his little paws. <laughs> oh, anyway, so those are our stories for this week. Yeah, super short this week, but. Yeah, but we didn't really have as much time to prepare this time either. We were kind of rushing. Yeah. Sorry, guys. But he's got to be leaving me for four days, five days. For my grandma's birthday. Tell her happy birthday, Brian. Tell her happy birthday. Tell her again. She deserves it. She does deserve it. Happy birthday again, Grandma. (laughs) Oh, Grandma. Yeah. So thanks for coming back again, guys. We appreciate it. Follow us on Instagram. Facebook. Uh, Instagram is at Deathly Afraid Podcast. Our Facebook group is just Facebook. Our Facebook group is just Facebook. That's it. Just try and find it. Good luck. (laughs) It's Deathly Afraid Podcast. Um, And then 
You can send us an email at deathlyafraidpod at gmail.com. Like us. Be our friend. And yeah. Send in more um, suggestions. I like getting the suggestions because then I don't have to try and figure out what I'm going to do for the next (laughs) one. I mean, you still got to pick from the suggestions, but. um, Makes it a lot easier. Yeah, it does, huh? I wish I could get some. I know. Just kidding, guys. Send in some suggestions for Whitley. No, I've been doing okay. <laughs> Would be kind of nice to get some listener stories, though, if anybody has anything. Even if it's a short story or you want to stay anonymous or whatever, just send it to our email at deathlyafraidpod at gmail.com. And Subject listener story. And, yeah, just let us know if you want to remain anonymous or if you don't care if we use your name or whatever just let us know yeah all right well we will see you guys next week yeah thanks for stopping by bye